0: Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine. I'm Paige Donner, the host and producer. This food and wine show is being brought to you directly from Paris, France. Here, we give you a taste of this delicious world with all its colorful and diverse personalities that make up the Paris culinary landscape. So sit back and relax and enjoy Paris Good Food and Wine. This episode has been brought to you by Bordeaux Food & Wine. Download the Bordeaux Food & Wine travel app in Google Play and the App Store. Find us at BordeauxFoodAndWine.com All right, well, all these lovely ambient sounds here come from this iconic place in the heart of uh, old Bordeaux, and it's called the Marseille de Capucin, but my friend and associate here, Dewey Markham Jr., friend, not so much associate, but friend, is going to really set the stage for us, because this is is his neighborhood.
1: Um, Well, yeah, I mean, it is my neighborhood. When I first arrived here in Bordeaux in 1993, I lived just a few blocks from here, by chance. And I discovered that I had as a neighbor this wonderful market. And I really came to appreciate it one evening, not long after my arrival, when I had a train. I was going to go to see some friends who were in Avignon. And the thing about the rail networks in France, uh, same thing with the auto networks, is it's a hub-and-spoke system. And to get anywhere in France, you pretty much have to go through Paris. And uh, so getting from Bordeaux to Avignon would have been faster to actually take the TGV, the high-speed train from Bordeaux, up to Paris, uh, change train stations from garmont Montparnasse to Gare de and then take the TGV down to the Rhone Valley. But I decided I was going to take the local train, which meant leaving Bordeaux at about four in the morning so I walked from where I was living over to the Gare Saint-Jean the train station here in Bordeaux and caught my train but that brought me by this market the Capucin market and uh, four o'clock in the morning everything is really going full steam here because this is the market that uh, a lot of professionals will come and uh, buy their provisions at and they will be operating starting around one o'clock in the morning and then around six uh, when the professionals have bought their meats and fish and vegetables or whatever then the stall holders have lunch that's what this cafe that we're sitting here at is all about and then they get up about seven thirty and go for the second part of their day when people like me who are just cooking you know, at home, come to do their shopping. So because they have professionals here, the choice of material that you have here, the choice of of just foods, is great. It is very wide and really good quality. So that's just, you know, where we're sitting here in Capucin.
0: You know, you made that distinction between uh, somebody, a professional, you know, shopping for a restaurant or someone cooking at home. But you bridged those two because, I mean, when did you graduate from the Culinary Institute of America? Because chefing was kind of your first love and then you sort of segged into wine.
1: Um, Well, chefing is a word that really never really applied to me. As I've always explained it, a chef is somebody who tells other people in the kitchen what to do. I, when I worked in restaurants, I never even got to tell the dishwasher what to do. I just applied heat to food. Uh, I was a cook. But I did graduate from the Culinary Institute of America in uh, 1984. And that was basically an outgrowth of my first experience in Paris. My first time in Paris was 1977. My first time in Europe, actually, and it was a whole other time in my life when nothing to do with food I was uh, involved with film at the time and uh, basically I was on a cruise ship going through the Baltic with a uh, film professor that I had at New York University where I got my master's degree in film and uh, no it's a whole story but basically I ended up in Paris which was supposed to be for a weekend and turned out to be for a month and fell in love with Paris and uh, as I say because it was my first time in Europe where I had gone through the Baltic and every day, every other day on the cruise ship, it was, you know, it was work on the ship, but we'd be in Bergen one day, and then Oslo another day, uh, and then maybe two days in Stockholm and Copenhagen, and Leningrad, as it was called back then, etc. In Helsinki. But living in Paris for the whole month really allowed me to fit in with the rhythm of the city. And I really began to feel so very comfortable there, I just fell in love with Paris. And I said, I have to do something to be able to get back and live here for at least two years. And because at that time, professionally, I was working as a typesetter, and I spoke no French whatsoever, I knew that working with the French language was not going to be an option. Even though I started studying at the Alliance Francaise during that month, I went back home to New York City to set about getting my ducks in a row to return to Paris. And I figured everyone has to eat, so I always enjoyed cooking, and that's what brought me to the Culinary Institute.
0: You know, so here you are, a kid from Harlem, right? You, you grew up in Harlem. Born in Harlem.
1: Okay, so... No, I was born in Harlem, but when I was five, we moved to the Bronx, the South Bronx.
0: Okay, through and through New Yorker. Yep. <laughs> born
1: and bred New Yorker.
0: And your first point in departure then, aside from that boat, the cruise ship, you know, gig, was your first point of departure here in France was Paris. And uh, somewhere along the way, you've mentioned to me about uh, listening to Radio Montmartre. Can you, can you rem- reminisce a little bit more about that?
1: Well, after 1977, when I returned from Paris, it took me about nine years to uh, arrange everything so I could return finally to Paris. And during that time, I kept Allianz Francaise, I took intensive classes in New York City for about five, six years. And the time at the Culinary Institute came in during that period also. But finally, in 1986, I was able to return to Paris for what I hope would be two years, it turned out to be three. And when I was sitting in my hotel room, just after my arrival, uh, I was tuning the radio up in the room. And I found Radio Montmartre, and I, it was love at first hearing. I love that because at the time, France had not yet, I don't believe in 86, they'd put into that place that rule where a certain percentage of airtime has to be dedicated to French music. So, it was the, the airwaves were just full of Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney and whomever. And if I wanted to hear that, I would have stayed home. Radio Montmartre, with all of the accordion music, playing the polkas and all the gingette music and all of that, I was I just loved it. And I still have a, a weak spot for accordions. If I see somebody playing the accordion on the street, I throw a few centimes in the hat.
0: Those are such priceless memories. And it's, uh, you know, you're speaking of a Paris, even now that's of a different era. You know, Not to mention, perhaps, a different chapter in your life, because you now you've now been here in Bordeaux. You're one of the you know, I don't want to say oldest expats, but you're the lo- one of the more, lo- more long-standing expats. You've, you've married, uh, you know, wonderful wife. Uh, you've got two wonderful children who are nearly grown. Your son is, is nearly grown. They've gone through all the French schools, and you've written the definitive book on Grand Cru Classé Bordeaux. So you've done so many things. I don't know. It's like, take it away, Dewey. You want to you talk about your wine, you know, your wine tours or the book? I mean, there's so much. There's so much.
1: Well, that's, that's what I do professionally. And professionally, yes, I do a variety of different things. I did come to Bordeaux to do the research on a, a book about this 1855 classification, which I towards the end of my stay in Paris, I, it first came onto my radar. And I, I really began to get involved with wine during those three years when I was director of the cooking school in Paris at the time. It was a school called La Varenne. And uh, I started a wine studies program there. And that was among the things that got me involved with wine. So leaving in 1989 was to go back to New York City to reinvent myself in wine. Always with an eye towards returning to Paris, which I still love to this day. So when I arrived here in uh, 1986, the idea was, well, I'd never stepped foot in Bordeaux before. I was gonna spend 12 months researching this book on the 1855 classification and then go to Paris and live happy ever after and do the writing up there and the book would come out and I'd be a Parisian once again. Well, uh, The Best Laid Plans of Mice and Men, Gang after gla. it turned out not to be 12 months of research, it was four years of research and writing and the book did come out about well, 17 years ago and I'm still here. So what happened was During that time, I visited all of these 1855 class growths, about 80 some odd properties. And at one property, I had a contact. And the contact held. And today, she is my wife. And because she's from Bordeaux, I'm now from Bordeaux. I'm here for the duration. So when the book came out, it it did very well. It was Wine Book of the Year uh, when it came out, when the James Beard Award. And people started contacting me to see if I could get them into some of these chateaux. At the time, wine tourism was not as developed as it's becoming today. And getting into a Bordeaux chateau was seen as something very difficult. So I started taking people around to the chateau, setting up itineraries. And uh, from there, it just you know kind of grew. So that's what I do part of the time. I also will um, teach wine classes. I um, write articles. I travel and do presentations. Uh, I I do a variety of different things, but everything I do is pretty much tied to wine.
0: You know, as someone who's an outsider in in Bordeaux, I mean, I've visited this town, you know, a few times over the last five years, but I've never spent, you know, any more than a a couple of weeks at a time here maximum. But I mean... What makes Bordeaux rich in terms of, of everyday life? I mean because you know Paris and but, in, but now you really know Bordeaux you know I mean this is this is definitely home so like I don't know can you share some some glimpses of what are some of the things that make life really rich here?
1: Well what makes life rich is a lot, a lot of it has to do with what you what you're interested in and uh, I to try to be open to as much as I can. I recall Thomas De Quincey wrote this book, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. You know, he has this, this one passage where he's, he's written, you know, just eating opium is not going to make you know, life more interesting for you. I think the way he puts it is if you're a goat herd and you take opium, you will dream of goat herding. So I've always tried to be as open as I can to wherever it was I'm living be it New York or Paris, uh, and the same has gone for Bordeaux. I remember when I lived in Paris, I had the occasion to meet a woman who had been living in Paris for 20 years. And she if she knew three words of French, that was a lot. Because Paris, which does have this really whole support system for Americans, you can spend your whole time going from um, the American college to the American library to American Express to the American hospital, I mean, it's just, you never get, you'll never talk to anyone in Paris. For me, again, just like wanting to listen to Radio Amatra, I didn't want, like listening with Radio Amatra, I didn't want to just surround myself with Americans. And it's been the same thing here in Bordeaux. I've been very fortunate in that my arrival in Bordeaux was able to introduce me to the last years of old Bordeaux. What I mean by that is, when I came to Bordeaux in 1993, Bordeaux was known as the sleeping beauty of France. And, it I mean, there's a lot of potential here, but nothing been done here for decades. And it wasn't until the mid-90s, when a new mayor was elected, replacing Jacques Chapandelmas, who was mayor since the post-war years, that Alain Juppé, who's still the mayor now, 20 years later, he and his whole municipal team decided to just reawaken Bordeaux. So I've been able to see the old Bordeaux and the new Bordeaux. And what has made Bordeaux very much more livable now is a lot of what's happened over the last 15 years or so, where before, upon my arrival in Bordeaux, I would have dinner. I'd cook dinner for myself uh, at six o'clock, like a good American, eating at six o'clock at night. And then I would clean my dishes and go out to discover this town I was now gonna call home. And 7.30, when the stores closed, there was nothing going on in Bordeaux. I mean, the shutters came down and you didn't see a dog on the street. Now, Bordeaux has become a much more lively place to live with a lot more cultural resources available. So what makes Bordeaux interesting is seeing Bordeaux evolve. That's what makes it interesting for me.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful perspective, and uh, definitely Bordeaux is, is certainly now a, a glittering ascendant star, uh, certainly on the tourism scene. I mean, it's always been a, a heavyweight in the wine world, of course. If you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Dewey Markham Jr., a resident expat of Bordeaux for over two decades, and the James Beard award-winning author of 1855, A History of the Bordeaux Classification. I'm Paige Donner, your host of Paris Good Food and Wine. I want to back up just a couple points there and, you know, underscore, you know, the fact that you won a James Beard uh, award, you know, for the, for the book that you wrote. I mean, that's a prestige that very few people ever attain. And it's, it's you know, it's like... It's, it's more than winning an Olympic, you know, I mean, it's like winning an Olympic gold medal. It's like winning an Oscar when you're a food writer and wine writer. You know, also, too, you know, I do want to broach this this subject, you know, if it's okay, because I've been to a lot of, you know, wine tastings, and, you know, we're all, we're all a melting pot these days, you know. But I, I have to say that I don't, there aren't that many African Americans, and, and also, too, I don't know that there are a lot of, you know, kids from, from South Bronx or Harlem who are James Beard award-winning wine writers, you know, especially when it comes to these old growths. you know, these, at 1855 classification, those are the, the biggest and the, and the best and the most famous chateaus. You know, we're talking Mouton Rothschild, we're talking, you know, Pichon Comtest. I mean, we're talking all the, you know, Lafitte, I mean, we're talking Latour, we're talking all the biggest you know, most famous, most high-priced wines. So the creme de la creme, the best of the best. You know, um, I don't know, do, do, you have, do you have any thoughts to share on, you know, being a, an African American in the world of wine?
1: Well, uh, probably uh, it's the last part of that hyphenate that has probably had more of an effect, just being an American. When I was doing the research, as I mentioned, I went to each of these 1855 classified growths. And I knew nobody in the wine profession here. But And I was working on a subject. I chose a subject which is very sensitive because this classification does still today have very real economic consequences for these people making these wines. And not knowing anybody in the wine trade, I you know, when I started contacting people, I didn't know what kind of reception I was going to get, but there was this one director of a property who uh, uh, towards the beginning of my research said something, which I thought was just being polite, but I heard it uh, often enough in subsequent chateau visits to understand the logic of it. He said that the fact that I, I am an American, that I was not local, made it easier for people at the chateau to open up to me. People often ask, what kind of response did you get? What kind of welcome did you get at these chateaux?" And I got to see everybody I, I called, everyone I wanted to see. I got a lot of cooperation, without which the book would not have been as good as it, as it turned out to be. But the idea that I was not from Bordeaux, because I didn't have a grandfather whose person I was talking to, their grandfather, and my grandfather had a history, and there was something now like a, you know... Account to settle. I didn't have an axe to grind. Being an American has very much been a plus. In Bordeaux, has very much been a plus, plus. and I found that when I was living in Paris, uh, you know, being an American is uh, the French really love Americans. In my experience, maybe not you know the American government that they're in love with, but they're able to make that distinction.
0: Well. That- you know, it's that's it's nice to hear, too, because, I mean, when you're talking a perspective of, you know, 25, 23, 25 years, our countries, our two countries have gone through a lot of, you know, a lot of ups and downs during, you know, during those decades and throughout the centuries, too. You know, my, my feeling of, even though Paris is so international, as you highlighted a little bit earlier, the American Hospital, the American Embassy, and a lot of people do make that circuit for the duration that they're there. Um, It's true. But I also find that Bordeaux, given that I have a very limited perspective now of just a few years and kind of the, like, like we said, the ascendant kind of light years now, it does seem though to have a strong international component, and it seems like it's because, of, it's because of the wine, because of those 300 years when they traded directly with, with England, uh, right? Like, I mean, this is like the first French market to have actually exported their wines. Am I correct, or?
1: Well, not so much the first French market, but what sets Bordeaux apart is that for 300 years, this entire area did belong to the English crown. 1154, just the history part of, of all of this, 1154, Eleanor of Aquitaine uh, married Henry Plantagenet, who shortly after the marriage would become Henry II, King of England. And uh, during these 300 years, that's when the English developed a taste for Bordeaux wine. And it wasn't until 1453, with the Battle of Castillon, when the English were definitively driven out of their French possessions. But that English link still continues quite strongly. The trading, after a period where the English were no longer that present in the Bordeaux marketplace, uh, they did return. And they have always been, the English have always been a key market for Bordeaux wines to the point where the negotiations, the, uh, the wine trade, has a very strong... English link, their negociants, who um, they've, you know, their children are named Basil and Ivanhoe and, you know, all of these is very, you know, strong English links. And that actually kind of made it easier for me to fit in, to avoid a, an American circle here, because most of the Anglo-Saxon experience that one has here is related to the English and not so much the Americans. So that is another way of um, finding fascination in Bordeaux, where I can not only get a French experience, but a bit of English as well.
0: So strong English ties that go back centuries and sort of a little bit newer American ties, maybe. Yes. <laughs> So now, shifting to a, a tourism perspective for a bit, when you, you know, say you have friends or people who are really interested, you know, maybe, you know clients you know, really interested in dis- in discovering wine, what kind of a dream itinerary would you kind of lay out for somebody? I mean, would it include the left bank and the right bank, or, you know, would it include the Arcachon base, you know, Basin d'Arcaixan, or what would be a, about a week of a dream itinerary?
1: Well, as far as... Chateau-Go, I will occasionally have, because when people contact me, and we exchange emails. Occasionally, someone will send me an email with, hi, I want to visit Chateau Latour, Chateau Lafitte, Chateau Mouton, Chateau Margaux, Chateau Cheval Blanc. I mean, these are all first growth properties. And it is possible, you know, in theory, too, put together an itinerary like that. But what I've always tried to explain to people And what I try to do when I put an itinerary together, you, you could visit only first growths, but what you really want to come away from Bordeaux with is an idea of what I call the personality behind the label. People often forget that these great wines are made by somebody who has made the conscious decision to do it this way and not that way, to have this style and not that style in the glass. And so... I try to include at least one chateau where you can perhaps meet uh, the chateau owner. And this means going to smaller properties. And that really makes for a very satisfying experience. That said, I've come to appreciate in the Bordeaux area, there is much more to it than wine. And so, yes, if you were to have a full week here and you wanted to spend an overnight or two outside of Bordeaux, By all means, go into the Dordogne Valley, spend a night in Sarlat, where, I mean, the gastronomic capital of Dordogne, one of the major culinary areas, gastronomic areas in France. A day trip out to Arcachon is nice. But again, go a bit further afield and spend an overnight in the Basque country. If you're really ambitious, spend an overnight just across the Spanish border, which is only about two, two and a half hours away, and you go to San Sebastian. We will often do that if we have like a long three-day weekend and, you know, just get a, make a night of tapas part of your itinerary. There's really a lot to do here in the Bordeaux region.
0: That's said so diplomatically. Well, you know, this, this trip for me was um, my big discovery. I have heard so much about Cap Ferrat and uh, i didn't know what to prepare for I, I know that it's the home of you know a lot of celebrities have now kind of moved in there and bought homes and and yet you know the comparison between arcisan and cap ferra i never quite grasped but spending a day in cap ferra and eating those oysters in you know along the shoreline there in one of those fish shacks that is just it's incomparable i mean there's no experience like that that is i would say that for me, if I were ever to, like, draw up a dream itinerary for somebody visiting this area, I would say, you, you must, <laughs> you must go and eat oysters along the shoreline in one of those little fishing villages in Cap Farrat. Dewey, how would you describe, I mean, if you can, and, you know, sort of in a nutshell, how would you describe the difference between right bank and left bank Bordeaux?
1: Well, I mean, it's actually really very simple. And what I've come to appreciate over 23 years of living here in Bordeaux is just how easy Bordeaux is to understand as a wine region. It basically comes down to, it's most basic, that the wines of the left bank are based on a predominance of Cabernet Sauvignon, and the wines of the right bank are mostly Merlot. And that simply comes down to the nature of the soil. Cabernet Sauvignon needs a very particular type of soil to ripen here in Bordeaux, and that is gravel. And the gravel, which is found in a sufficient concentration to really ripen Cabernet Sauvignon, is found only in the vineyards of the Medoc, to the north of Bordeaux City, and the Grave area to the south. Grav means gravel, actually, to give you an idea of how important the gravel is. So Left Bank is very easy to understand when you look at a map of Bordeaux and you see there are three main waterways in Bordeaux. There is the Garonne River, which comes in from the south, has its origins in the foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains, flows north, becomes the Gironde estuary, and continues on out to the Atlantic. Well, if you're on a raft floating along the Garonne River and then up to the Gironde, no steam, no sail, just carried along by the current, all the vineyards are passing on the left-hand side of the raft. That's the left bank. Simple as that. The right bank, however, is not what's on the right-hand side of, you know, that river. The third major waterway, in addition to the Garonne River and the Gironde Estuary, is the Dordogne, which comes in pretty much due east. It has its origins in the center of France, an area called the Massif saint And if you're on a raft on that river, floating along, What's on the right-hand side of that river, namely Saint-Emilion, Pomerol, and Fronsac, that's the right bank. But, make life easy, anything that is not the left bank, Bordeaux, Bordeaux Bordeaux-Superior, made in the Entre de Mer area, or one of the Côte regions, Côte de Bourg, Côte de Blaye, that's going to be majority Merlot also. So basically you have Cabernet Sauvignon, you have Merlot. And Cabernet Sauvignon are just in the areas of Medoc, and the Grave area, for the most part.
0: That's that was very succinct. I've never heard it described so succinctly. That's a really clear understanding of the geography here, and it makes actually things the way you laid that out. It makes it uh, understandable. Last question: Are there any highlights during the year that would maybe be? I mean, in addition, you know, to putting together, you know, your you know someone's own itinerary or working with you, for example, to help, you know, put together an itinerary, say they're planning a tour for themselves or a group or something. But outside of that, are there any events throughout the year that people can kind of come that are sort of you know, tourist-oriented, be they, be they wine. And I don't mean en premier, because that's, that's trade, you know, wine, you know, wine professionals. But I'm, I'm just talking about kind of the layman, if they want to sort of come and partake of a couple of days of fun and food and festivities <laughs> and wine. This episode has been brought to you by Bordeaux Food & Wine. Download the Bordeaux Food & Wine travel app in Google Play and the App Store. Find us at BordeauxFoodandWine.com.
1: Well, in terms of wine, yes, a lot of people, I know I did before I came to Bordeaux, you'd hear about Futures Week, which is the first week of April, when the entire wine world just shifts on its axis, and everyone comes sliding into Bordeaux. Since 2000, there have been between five and 6,500 people. Come to Bordeaux for what is basically four days of tastings, and it's a madhouse here. And now, with the great demand and interest worldwide, it's gone beyond the four days. Now, the whole first half of April is become very difficult. It's become very difficult to get into all the chateau one would like to. That has always been the case with harvest time. Many people want to come in September, October. And I've always said that's the worst time to come to Bordeaux. Because a lot of chateaux who really can't give you the kind of visit that they want you to experience because they're too busy bringing the grapes and making wine, they prefer not to do it at all. So a lot of chateaux will simply close their doors. By no means is it all a chateau, but a lot of chateau. And so those are the two times of the year that I always recommend to avoid. Summer months are good. Probably for me the best time is probably the month of May, because then the vineyards are, have enough leaves uh, on the vines where you're getting that very beautiful classic look of these long rows of, of greenery stretching out to the horizon in the wine areas. And it's, the, the height of the summer tourist season is not yet kicked in, so the weather is just starting to straighten up and fly right. So that's, that's a good time to come. As far as wine goes, there are events that, again, the municipality has brought in, like the, uh, the Fête de Vin, which takes place in June, in the non-Vinexpo years, meaning in the even-numbered years. That draws a lot of people to Bordeaux, but there are other things that are just ongoing now. Just two months ago, they uh, inaugurated the Cité de Vin, which is, you can come any time of the year, and it's a wonderful wine exhibition area, not just about Wines of water, but Wines of the World. For me personally, my own calendar has become centered around the, the food, the seasonality of certain foods. So in the fall, if you're not picking grapes, you're in the woods looking for the wild mushrooms here. Seps is the variety that most people come out of the woods with in the spring. Um, fish come into the estuary to spawn, and so you get things like shad, you get uh, lamprey in season. There are just, you know, different things that come into season, you know, whether you're at a market like Capucin, and you see the fruits and the vegetables that change with the seasons. I become very much attuned to that, and so that, for my own personal calendar, is how I count the passing of the months.
0: You know, right when you said fish, just behind us is, we're in that, in this little coffee shop Chez Jean-Mi, which I know is famous, and it's also a bistro à huître. So as you were talking about fish, I, you know, I took an inhale of breath and I smelled the fresh oysters and the, the fish that were, that were surrounded by, um, the bouleau, and uh, is this a good place to come and have oysters too?
1: It is. They're, the oysters, Well, the great thing about oysters that I've really come to appreciate living here is that you can have oysters all year round. In America, oysters are just like for fancy occasions, usually in the winter. And there is that old story about you don't eat oysters in months without an R, which basically was not because the oysters are not necessarily inedible. Although some people will say because of their reproductive cycle, uh, they become more milky in, uh, in character in the summer months and it doesn't bother me. The whole thing about nighting oysters in months of ours, because those are the summer months, May, June, July, August, and transporting oysters from coastal areas to Paris. Oysters didn't always make that trip very successfully, and so you did run the risk of eating a bad oyster and killing yourself. But in Bordeaux, on Sunday mornings, when everything is closed except bakeries and news agents, Oyster sellers will come in from Arcachon and further afield, set up trestle tables in front and sell their oysters. So you know they're fresh. They're from the people who have actually raised them. So that is something which, living here, I've really come to appreciate as fresh oysters. The idea of coming to the Capu-San market is that you get such a great variety of other seafood and shellfish. But oysters, that again, one of the things that makes living in Bordeaux so enjoyable.
0: Dewey, thanks for such an authentic, you know, and genuine perspective, and learned. Thank you so much for this conversation this morning.
1: No, it was a pleasure. I enjoyed the opportunity to come to Capucin when I'm out here shopping and just be able to sit down and have this talk. Thank you.
0: <laughs> thanks for joining us for this episode of Paris Good Food and Wine. A big thank you to all who helped make this show possible. And especially a grand merci beaucoup from me, your host and producer, Paige Donner. You can find this and past episodes of Paris Good Food and Wine on iTunes. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Paris Food Wine. And like us on Facebook at Paris Food and Wine.